Thank you very much. And thanks to Emma for setting this up, <laughs> for helping set this up. Um, well, look, we're a small group, so we, I think we can have what I'd call an informal conversation. I'll present, but we could just open it up and have a much more um, engaged discussion rather than, you know, me presenting and then quite, it's obviously better for that. Um, what I'd like to do, just to kind of uh, get it going, is maybe explain to you a bit about who I am, other than that CV stuff. Um, and then, in a way, how not just Jerusalem, but the Middle East, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has been treated politically, the main approaches. And the reason I'll do that is because if I'm going to answer the main question here, which is the role of Jerusalem in reconciliation, I have to do that, because I'll explain why. So I will then get to, well, can Jerusalem be used for reconciliation in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? It's a tricky question. I'll try to give you some approaches and answers. And then after that, we'll get to what I'd call the harder part, which is like the political realities. Because in the end, we all have to deal with hard, tough realities, especially in the Middle East, about no matter what I say or we think, uh, including then some lessons to draw out of all of it, okay? So I'm, I've worked on the Middle East a very, very long time. Um, I've enjoyed it. It's like almost a quarter century, and I'm from the region. I was born there in Lebanon. I'm half Lebanese. And then we immigrated to Canada in 1968, but I've been working on the region basically since 1991, so 25 years. And all over it, mostly the Levant, meaning Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, Egypt, now very unfortunately Syria. But I've also worked regionally, um, the dynamics between all the major powers in the region, and I've worked a bit in the Maghreb, in Tunisia and Morocco. I'm specialized in the practice of either policy development or of actual mediation, or the bridge between the two. That's what I used to do as a diplomat, formal diplomat, like UN, Canada. And that's what I've done since in the kind of NGO bracket academic world, although I must tell you I am not an academic. I'm a complete practitioner. You guys can take me around in circles on academics, I'm not an academic. So you're going to hear completely a practitioner's approach. Okay? Um, uh, and so the last 15 years I've been working either through universities or through NGOs, like Search for Common Ground or Today Toledo International Center for Peace and others, um, to develop policy on the region or to do mediation. And that's what we call track two. Track one is official, track two is uh, unofficial. I like it because it gives me a lot of freedom and range and creativity, which you don't get as an official. It's pretty straightforward. Be happy to answer any questions about that, about the dif those different worlds. I'm a bit slightly specialized in what we call track 1.5, which means that often, not always, what I do has officials present. Uh, so they actually sit at the table, but of course in an unofficial capacity. That's what track 1.5 is generally. I have, like, many people do this, but that's an area where I tend to work more, probably because of my background as a, as a diplomat, a formal diplomat. So I know how officials work, and so it's easier for me to work with them. Um, I will say this as preface and probably as conclusion as well. I've talked to Emma about these things, she knows them a bit too much maybe, but I, I've worked on the region a very, very long time, and I'm from there, 
So um, I'm basically tired of the Middle East, <laughs> and it's gotten worse. I mean, I'm saying this because it's a reality. It's actually gotten much worse since I've started working on it in 1991. Not just Israel-Palestine. Israel-Palestine is worse, but the whole region. So I think it's incumbent upon all of us, or anybody who's interested in the subject or the region, to start to look at other ways of doing things, even, and I do suggest that is the case, even if it's very long-term, very long-term. And, and so when I get to the end here, um, some of the ideas I'll be suggesting are very, very long-term. I, I actually don't think there are any easy fixes almost anywhere in the region. We can discuss that, but including Israel-Palestine. There's no, like, you know, snap your fingers, something happens, and then it's resolved. No matter what happens in Israel-Palestine, in Syria, elsewhere, um, it's first steps, and then there'll be a hundred other steps. So. How has the Israeli-Palestinian conflict tried to be resolved in the past? Um, really, there are three methodologies. One is the most obvious, and you see it all the time, which is the Americans try to broker a deal. And it's a very problematic approach. It's failed every time. Uh, there are many reasons why it fails. One of the primary reasons is um, that the American officials, some of them know their stuff cold, but they don't really understand the Palestinian side. And then the power dynamics of Washington uh, make any approach by these individuals in the end problematic. But those aren't the only reasons, but we can go through all of them. The last Kerry approach, uh, the Clinton approach, before that, the in-betweens, when the Americans get involved, and this is the main mechanism, it doesn't work. And it doesn't work because of these implicit, and often, by the way, sometimes, sometimes believe it or not, unconscious biases. I could even give you examples I've had with uh, these individuals. Uh, it doesn't work. But there's also a power imbalance. It's as basic as that. The Israelis, almost any government, Israeli government, whether more seriously intended, like, let's say, Ehud Barak at Camp David, or less seriously inten intended, like uh, Netanyahu today, um, they know the game regarding the United States and their uh, relationship with the United States. And they know what that means. And the Palestinians are behind the eight ball. And even worse, the Palestinians are not very good at managing being behind the eight ball. So the number of problems start to... So in other words, if they start here, it just skews. It slowly skews, and it ends up in a very difficult position. And every time this approach has been tried, the results being the same, the quiet or secret um, ultimate solutions are pretty well the same. <laughs> which is why you help hear people saying things like, we all know what the answer is to Israel-Palestine. I'm not sure about that. We can discuss that. But when they go through this approach, they end up trickling down to a certain set of answers about the main issues, which are settlements, border, Jerusalem, and refugees. Obviously involving a two-state solution. I should say that, because there are other solutions. Well, there are other ideas. I'm not sure they're solutions. 
So that's one, and the main one. And why is it the main one? It's because the Israelis won't do anything without the Americans. That's, that's the reason. And if others get involved, example right now, the French, if the Americans don't get involved, which they are, it's, they're uncertain, the Americans, whether they want to be involved in the French initiative, um, then the Israelis don't take it seriously. So we're, you're caught in a catch-22. If the Israelis want, if Israelis want the Americans involved, the Americans are involved, it's skewed. So that's one. The second, which I tend to favor, it's a bit more theoretical, it happened once, which was Madrid 1991, is the multilateral approach, which is you get a large host of countries to back the process. The Americans are still, by far, primus inter Paris. However, the multilateral approach has many advantages, including giving the Arabs and the Palestinians a sense of backup. They have a sense that more people are behind them. Um, multilateral approaches also tend to come up with clearer potential answers. There's another multilateral approach which Israelis don't like, which is the Arab Peace Initiative of 2002, which was an Arab League statement, very short, which said this is what we would agree to through an Israeli-Palestinian solution. That's still multilateral. It's one-sided, but it's multilateral. The other multilateral approach was in George Bush got everybody together in Washington. With, it was Olmert and Abu Mazen, again, to try to get them. And the French are trying to do that right now. The hidden secret of the multilateral approach, which is kind of hinted at now with the, with the French, uh, doesn't happen, but it's necessary, which is some kind of international pressure. That can take many forms. In the diplomatic world, it, it, the ultimate form it would take is a UN Security Council resolution. But there are, as you all know, civil society forms of that which the Israelis despise, which is BDS. Okay. That's not multilateral. That's a civil society approach. But the multilateral approach, the Israelis don't like it because it does imply possibility of pressure. And the French are playing on this right now, which is why the Israelis have rejected the French initiative, um, because the French initiative has as an ultimate possibility a Security Council resolution. It's very unlikely to happen because of American politics this year, election. Um, it also, what it does, the French initiative, it cuts both ways. It also prevents the Palestinians from going to the UN or to the International Criminal Court. So Abu Mazen says, he said, uh, I'm not going to go to the UN more. I'll go through the French initiative. So multilateral, in theory, could work if, in other words, if the third parties uh, decide to solve it and to tell the parties, this is the solution. Because as one Israeli negotiator once told me, a very brilliant man, we can make the ocean into a river, but we can't, we can't cross it, the two sides. I think he's right, by the way, which is why I think it's facile for many people to say, um, we can resolve these. We know what the resolution is. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, in other words, and we'll get to this, Jerusalem is core to this. I'm not sure that the Israelis and Palestinians separately can agree to what we would consider the international community generally considers as the answer. They can't bridge that river. They can come really close, but they just can't do that final because it's emotional, it's symbolic, Jerusalem, and the refugees, Palestinians. And so it's highly loaded politically or it can be made to be so. It doesn't have to be, by the way. 
doesn't have to be, but it is. <laughs> Politicians use these things to gather support, to create problems, uh, more radical groups. So that's the second. The third, which happened once and then has been tried ever since, <laughs> is track two. And it worked, quote-unquote, during Oslo. It was a secret negotiation led by a Norwegian, and it worked. I mean, it worked in the sense that there was a deal. We can discuss the quality of that deal. That's another matter, but there was a deal. It actually worked. So that's the third approach. Since the success of Oslo, there's been a kind of proliferation of attempts to resolve Israel-Palestine through Track 2. It's an industry. I'm part of it. And um, I don't do it. Like, I don't do that right now. I've done forms of that, which we can discuss. There are very few people doing Track 2 in Israel-Palestine right now of the classical version. During the Kerry process, there was, though. There was a secret channel, actually. While Kerry did his thing, there was a track two process going on, which frankly, actually, I think did more damage than good in that process. We, I can get into all these details once, you know, why, etc. Those are the approaches, and there's a very important dimension to all these approaches which will take us to Jerusalem. All of them are logical and rational in the sense of emphasizing confidence-building measures and starting with what's possible and avoiding the most difficult and hoping that one day they'll deal with the most difficult. Oslo is that. So, you start with Gaza and Jericho. You start with the possible. That's what Oslo did. Gaza and Jericho were first. Um, let me be bold, and just to get you guys maybe to argue with me. I, I think this will never work there. And when it happened, Oslo, I was a younger with hair Canadian diplomat, and I, I, I was happy and I worked on it, obviously, as a Canadian diplomat at that time in 1993. Um, but I told my colleagues it won't work. And not in the Middle East, it won't work. Yeah. Um, it's sad to say this, there are too many people who just wreck the process if it's confidence building in the Middle East. Because it's, it's extremists, but they have echoes into large segments of society when they see that there's a process that's going to take away their ultimate desire, they'll start to wreck it. <laughs> so it's just not that rational. There are too many spoilers on both sides. And that's what happened in the 90s, by the way. An Israeli killed Yitzhak Rabin, <laughs> and Hamas was doing terror attacks all the time. All the time. So to wreck the process, I mean, it's, it's, like a, it's a conscious, intentional action. Because they don't want their dream, if I can call it that, taken away. Both sides. Okay? Um, so, if the confidence building won't work, and the pressure is not there, so what could work? Could it be that you start with the center, which is the purpose of this talk? Which is, there are two centers to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. One is Jerusalem, like a, almost a literal center, and also a figurative and symbolic center. And the other is what's called the 48 issue, which is, has two sides to it. Has the recognition of Israel, <laughs> because it was created in 48, and the other side of that is the right of return of Palestinian refugees. Or that's the language, and lawyers, maybe some of you are lawyers, I'm not a lawyer, will insist that it's the right of return. However, there's a huge spectrum 
of understanding and interpretation of what that means and of what really matters to Palestinians. It's very delicate stuff because nobody can really speak for the Palestinian refugees. There are so many kinds of refugees. So there are a lot of assumptions in that terrain, but the point is that that bundle of trauma to both, well, on the Israeli side, it's the lack of recognition. By the way, that's where all the Jewish state stuff that Netanyahu has played up over the last five or six years came out of. Because in 1947, the UN Partition Plan does say the creation of a Jewish state. does say that. But Palestinians can't recognize that now. But when Israelis demand that, it's a, it's, it's, Netanyahu's using it as a spoiler, but it's also a kind of demand to be recognized for what Israel understands itself to be. In other words, tell us that we belong here, which the Arabs have a hell of a time doing. So those 48 issues, which is um, some recognition of the, of the plight and the suffering of the Palestinian people, and the other is recognition of the presence of a Jewish state in the Middle East, whatever one may call it. There are a lot of language formulations around that. Um, those, are very, those are core issues, and the other is Jerusalem, which is what I'll focus on today. Um, Jerusalem is, I've worked on it a very long time, I've lived there. I love the city and absolutely hate it, both at the same time. It's one of the most beautiful places on the planet, I think. How many of you, how many of you have been there? Yeah. And at the same time, it's, have you lived there? No. Did you, Emma? No, no, no. no. It's, it's completely maddening. It's oppressive in its religiosity. Um, but that's only one aspect. The political problem with Jerusalem is triple, and I'm really simplifying. One, it's a mixed city. It's one-third Arab, two-thirds Jewish, and the Jewish side is also split. And I'm oversimplifying. But it used to be, it's changing by the way, about a third religious and a third secular, more secular. But the secular are running, Israelis, to Tel Aviv or elsewhere, because Jerusalem has become so religious. So Jerusalem is getting increasingly religious and right-wing. And in the last two years, if you've watched the news, there's been a lot of problems around the core, core issue, which is the Haram al-Sharif or the Temple Mount. And so the Arab population of Jerusalem, which was incredibly quiescent since 67 has now become a problem for the Israelis and they're living a problem the Palestinians in Jerusalem so there's that level which is the actual let me call it the living city the people the second is is the cap it's the cap the Israelis considered their capital so there's a political national dimension of course the Palestinians want it to be their capital East West Jerusalem the original city was split until 67, it was taken over by the Israelis. Um, so there's the political dimension, and the third is the religious, which is not separate from the political. What does it mean, the religious? It means, again, by the way, I'm oversimplifying, we can get into all the details. It means there are holy sites of incredible relevance to three faiths, but let's discount the Christian side for now, because it's less problematic. Not totally unproblematic, but there are Jewish sites, Muslim sites, and one site that's both Jewish and Muslim, which is the, the Haram, Al-Aqsa, or Temple Mount, whatever you wish to call it. And, um, and by the way, what you call it matters a hell of a lot. 
I can get into all those details. That's an issue I may end up working on again. Much, I think I must be mad soon. The exact, I mean, the Alexa, the actual site. Um, so those sites are not only obviously physically um, places for people to come worship, they are, but they're also heavily, incredibly heavily loaded political symbols. It is impossible to dissociate those two elements today. Today, It's possible in the future if there's no conflict. And that's where things go round and round. Is as long as the conflict's not resolved, people make those symbols overly important. Both sides. And um, what's happening now is, due to changes in the Israeli political dynamic, the right wing in Israel is trying more and more to prey on the Temple Mount. As you guys know about this through the news, right? And that didn't used to happen. This is a relatively new phenomenon, increasing in number and intensity. They've kind of gotten it under control the last eight months, but it's very, very shaky. Very, very shaky. It's, let me suggest to you that that is a representation, an extreme representation, of the Jewish-Israeli desire to be on that land. Because for a very religious and nationalistic Jew, this is a natural act. This is my holy site, my holiest site, <laughs> and I need to pray there. By the way, I'm not suggesting any right-wrong here. We can get into all that. I'm just explaining to you their mentalities. For the Palestinians, the exact opposite. It's the most third most important site in Islam. It's, an, it's a Muslim site. For many, it's now, this is a new thing, it, the whole thing, it looks like this table, so it's good we brought this table, uh, is, is a mosque. The whole thing is a mosque. Every inch, it didn't used to be that way, by the way, that's my personal view. Now, because of the Israeli pressures, the Palestinians are saying this whole site is a mosque. Every stone, even though like this, what used to be called, now they've changed the name, Al-Aqsa Mosque here, and the Dome of the Rock right in the middle, and this was the mosque, the actual place of Muslim prayer, now the whole haram, which is now called Al-Aqsa, is a mosque. Why? Because Palestinians are worried of Jewish claims. And they're most worried of what's called the Hebronization of this site. The uh, Tomb of the Patriarchs in Hebron was over time split between Israelis and Palestinians into two zones, one for Jewish prayer, one for Muslim prayer. There's no way, I'm telling you, there's no way Palestinians will accept this on this site. It's not going to happen. There'll be a war before that happens. So, the question though becomes, can you reconcile these two peoples by dealing with Jerusalem first? If you ask me, I think somebody should make a try of it. I know it's really delicate. And here's the thing. And this is, I'll get to actually some specifics in a second. You can't do that without actually tagging it to an end of conflict. You can't. You, you, if you do anything to this site without an end of conflict, it'll be perceived by one side of it or another as some kind of take. But the question really is, 
can you use Jerusalem to end the conflict? I think you might. Nobody's really tried. Why? Um, because it means so much to both sides. And if you unlock Jerusalem, you unlock the whole conflict. Because it represents all the problems of the conflict at once. All of them. The symbolic, emotional, the political, and the daily demographic life. All at once. So, what are some potential solutions? One is division. Until the Kerry Initiative, it was the preferred solution. You divide the city. It was what was always looked at. It was what was looked at at Camp David. And what happened at Camp David is they actually managed to agree to divide everything except this site. And it broke down on this site. But the rest, they agreed pretty well. They agreed to divide up the old city. They agreed to divide up the rest of Jerusalem. Again, we can get into details how. So that's one approach. Is This is mine. This is yours. You come to this site. You know, Bill Clinton said, below this plaza is Israeli. And on top is Palestinian. I mean, that's, yeah, that's pretty bizarre. But that, those are the kinds of ideas. Um, couldn't agree. And after the failure of Camp David, a, the head Sephardic rabbi suggested a term which is still out there, which is that this should become God's sovereignty, which I don't know if any of you are lawyers, but I don't know what that means. Some people have studied that. But that's another idea. In other words, it belongs to God. It's not Israeli or Palestinian. I'm not sure Palestinians today will accept that, by the way. So, division. I don't know what to do with this site. I and many others have never believed division would work. Not just because of this site, but because the city is a city. And if you were redivided, by the way, there would be people know more about Jerusalem than I do that would kill me right now because they really believe in division. Um, so, because I didn't really believe in division along with some other Canadians, we developed another model, which is that Jerusalem Old City Initiative, which is you don't just deal with this site, you take the old city, which is walled, and you say that city has a special regime, that part of Jerusalem. It's run by a third party. Which, who is appointed by Israelis and Palestinians together. So that third party doesn't get parachuted in from the UN or from the United States. It's agreed upon by the Israelis and Palestinians. And we describe the mechanism for, um, for what that administration would do. And it's fundamentally security, archaeology and heritage, the hot stuff, not property, Nothing to do with the citizens. The citizens would be either Israeli or Palestinian. But there would be that third party controlling the tough issues, the issues of friction. So that's another model. There's another um, aspect of work which is really sensitive. I think it needs to be done, but it's really long term, which is the narrative component. See, what happens in, uh, you guys know all this, in conflict is the sides start to reject each other. So, this site, for example, in the 20s, was um, under the Islamic Waqf. It was recognized as a Jewish site. Now, it's not recognized as a Jewish site at all. <laughs> to be more specific, it wasn't this site. It was the wall, the Western Wall. Was, by Islamic Waqf, paperwork, Recognized as a Jewish site. No, no way. 
And the, Palest the Palestinians, you know, Arafat in uh, Camp David was saying that, that the temple was never in Jerusalem. It was in Nablus. Look, I know Christian Palestinians, Christian, not Muslim, who say there's no evidence of the temple being in Jerusalem. Well, by the way, I, I, I'm not an ar archaeologist. I cannot tell you. I think there's some evidence, but I cannot tell you whether there is or isn't. But you know, I mean, the, these Christian Palestinians are denying their own um, holy book, which said that Jesus came to Jerusalem to the temple because of politics. Just to show you how extreme uh, politics can be in blinding people. So, there's something here, like it's kind of the nuclear reactor and all this, which is, well, why is it these religions and political understandings of these religions deny the other to this degree? Technically, there's no reason why this site can't be for both. Like, it's the politics. But, it's frankly, people who say it's just the politics are oversimplifying because there's no politics with them, them winding into this site. They, politics and religion in many places in the Middle East get woven together. Look at ISIS. They get, they get become inseparable. It's a form of identity. And by the way, when I say that, it doesn't mean that that identity is, is non-fungible. It, identities can change. I mean, I just gave you an example of the perception of the Western Wall for Muslims in the 1920s versus now. And this is my own statement, it may be wrong, but many Muslims are redefining what this is now, terminology-wise. So, terms of identity and symbolism can change over time. I do think, for the sake of the Middle East and Israel-Palestine, there needs to be work done at the deeper level of understanding basically what religion is and what politics are. And there is a massive confusion. I think it's literally a confusion, by the way. And you have political groups on both sides that just m meld the two and run with it. It's effective. Because it summons unquestioned allegiance. It summons cultural heritage onto a political platform. Successful formula. At least for getting people to follow you. I'm not sure it's successful to really achieve a functional, sustainable political system over a long time. In fact, what it does, very honestly, is it breeds conflict. So, my question, and this is the stuff I'm most interested in and I'm writing about the most, even a short book on it, is, well, what is, why, why are these understandings of religion bridged with politics make people so exclusive? Because that's what we're talking about. What is it? I think there are certain human mechanisms that can be tapped into and described and clarified that make us act like that. And when we become more aware of those, we're less prone to be manipulated into them by people who, whether consciously or not, do it. Political leaders, they do it. They just manipulate people into those mental states. And then it's taboo, that's it. I mean, if you actually look at the history of this site and prayer, it's all over the map. <laughs> Example. In the 60s, Palestinians told me, they used to play football here. They wouldn't play football in the mosque. Because it was like a park. 
So it was looked at differently. In the Middle Ages, Jews didn't pray at the Western Wall. Now it's the holiest site, except for the actual plaza. They used to pray on the Mount of Olives. So these things change. They get built up over time. They can be unbuilt. And the fixations is the problem. And how do you politically get them to move off their fixations? I'll put it to you. I think, before I get to kind of political realities, I think you do need both sides to calm down about the conflict and about Jerusalem by having them make statements which are extremely difficult to each other as end of conflict, not just as interim measures. They will never do them regarding their presence there. It's very hard for the Palestinians, okay? Because the Palestinians feel like their land was robbed. So why do they want to recognize whatever, in their minds, robbed them? But here's the reality. The Israelis are there, and they feel they need some kind of sense of belonging there. So people do work on language related to that. At the religious level and the political level. That work's being done, by the way. It's not like some, you know. I'm saying this because I'm not sure the conflict will ever be resolved without it. In theory. The realities, and this is the last thing I'll say, I'll open up to you guys. The, real, the political realities, today, there's no interest in Israel to resolve it according to the terms I'm telling you. I don't think there's even interest in having a, a truly independent Palestinian state beside Israel. Number one. Number two, the Palestinians are still, rightly or wrongly, deeply attached to certain principles and ideas about what they should get, and they don't budge. B, the Palestinian body politic is almost completely hollowed out. Almost completely. Abu Mazen, it's endgame. Um, maybe there'll be a new Fatah. Marwan Barghouti, others, it's very possible. But there's a whole renewal process that has to happen. And uh, Hamas is weakening as a political power. In other words, there's a question mark around the Palestinian political project. It's been around a long time, and very tragically for the Palestinians, it's kind of failed to achieve what they wanted. Therefore, Palestinians are looking for new. But what is that new? So we're in a very difficult situation where Israel is feeling very comfortable and has become both sociologically and politically more right-wing, and the Palestinians are weakening politically. That's the reality. Never mind what I, all that I just told you before. If I look at that, I think there's big trouble coming, which will involve Jerusalem. And that big trouble means is because um, there will come a point when you have these two eth different ethnic groups on one land and they're not coexisting. And that's, that's where we are. And I think Israelis, many are aware of what I'm telling you. Many. But the powers that be, even if they're aware, they don't care, they have other plans. They have other plans. Could be a train wreck. <laughs> because in about 15 years, if you include Gaza, 
um, you basically have majority Arabs actually on that land. If you exclude Gaza, there aren't many fewer, I mean, West Bank, Jerusalem, Israel. There are fewer Arabs, but not that many fewer. So there's a demographic time bomb. And how are Israelis going to manage this? Um, you know, some Israelis tell me when push comes to shove and the choice is between the land or the people, they'll choose, the la the, the, they'll choose being a people. In other words, they want to remain Jewish. So they'll get out. I think that struggle in Israel hasn't begun yet. Because right-wing Israelis want to hold the land, the West Bank. But with that come people. <laughs> Arabs, non-Jews. That decision hasn't been made in Israel. It's kind of like floating around. People know about it, but there's no hard decision. Because there's no pressure to make a decision. In fact, that's a big problem about Israel-Palestine at the moment. With Syria, with Yemen, with the Middle East basically going into, with the Saudi-Iran problem. Israel-Palestine is being forgotten. But I think it's a time bomb, for the, including for the Israelis. And instead of all, last thing I'll say, instead of all that I've told you about what should be done in Jerusalem, which is deeper work over long term to diffuse the exclusivity between these sides, that's the real work, okay? Doing the opposite, <laughs> the exact opposite, which is active, most Israelis don't, by the way, many Israelis don't, don't even go to Jerusalem. It's just like not on their radar screen. It's, but those that go are ardent. And among those that go, are highly politicized people. And they're the ones who are effectively creating a problem with the abetments of the Israeli government sometimes on these holy sites. And the natural, well, the Palestinian reaction is to completely exclude the possibility of, of Jewish presence. That's the dynamic. It's the opposite of what I told you. They have to go in like exactly the opposite direction to resolve their problem. But they won't. They're bad habits. Okay, I think I've said enough. Why don't we open it up for questions? Well, thanks so much, first. Thank you.